Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Uh, happy Advent, Westside. We're so excited to dive in uh, to this season over the next four weeks. Um, the four main traits that mark uh, this season. They follow the four candles around the outside, the, the traits of hope and peace and joy and love. Those are the things that mark the coming of Christ and as a result, they mark uh, how we want to celebrate this season. And in this particular time around, we are going to key into one of those traits. We are going to be looking at the topic of joy in particular, Um, a courageous choice in the midst of um, a frantic and frenzied um, and polarized world. Choosing joy in a world that wants you to be angry is, um, uh, it takes some work. It takes some work. And so we're going to take a look at, at this week, joy in the waiting, because Advent is marked by waiting. Uh, Next week, uh, you'll get to hear from Gianna talking about joy through trial. Uh, The week after that, our wonderful intern, Justin, is going to be preaching on joy in the ordinary. And then lastly, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at joy in wonder as as the the swell of the season kind of hits this crescendo on that day, joy in wonder, the celebration uh, of the coming of Christ. Um, I... I want to start this series, though, with um, just taking a few minutes to orient us to the season of Advent. I don't, I don't want to come in just assuming that we all know exactly what Advent is. Uh, just coming from my personal experience, Advent wasn't really something that we talked about a whole lot in church uh, during this season. It was all kind of this vague moving towards uh Christmas and that like celebration of the birth of Jesus, but that was like the main thing we talked about. I didn't really hear a whole lot about Advent until I got on into college and started becoming a part of, of churches that that emphasized it more. So I I don't know where everybody's coming from. I don't want to assume anything about what you know or don't know about Advent. So just a couple minutes here on what Advent is. First of all, most simply, Advent is the season leading up to. Christmas, it's the season that begins the church calendar. I've got a handy-dandy little graphic up here. Yeah, the season leading up to Christmas, and it begins the church calendar. The church calendar uh, goes throughout the course of the year. Do we have our handy-dandy graphic? Is it going? It wants to. I know, I know, I know it wants to. There it is. All right. Here we go. So while we think of December as ending the, the calendar year, which of course it does, this is the end of um, our 2023 coming up, Advent is actually the beginning of the church calendar. It's when things begin. Um, we go Advent and then Christmas, and not just a day, but it is a season, followed by ordinary time or epiphany. 
Uh, and then Lent is the season leading up to uh, when we celebrate Easter and Pentecost as a part of that season. And then the majority of the year is ordinary time. That's why we're having a whole week on joy in the ordinary. I love that the majority of the church calendar is just like normal stuff, and that's good because most of life is just kind of normal stuff. But in this season, we get to take this specific amount of time and give all of our attention to um, anticipation of what is to come. Advent simply means coming or arrival. It's something that is on its way, and we are to sit with an alert posture, uh, an excited waiting, an active patience for what is to come. Advent um, deals with the coming of Christ on really three different levels. We, we think about it as being the celebration of the birth of Christ. Yes, the Advent is a celebration, celebration of the first coming, so we're looking back. It's a celebration of the first coming of Christ that we may live in anticipation of his second coming. So, in other words, we are cultivating the habit of heart by looking back and getting excited about this this season to come. We're cultivating a habit of heart that helps us then prepare our own lives and our own uh, hearts for his coming uh, someday in the future. And in so doing, while we look back and while we look forward, we are also being attentive to Christ breaking into our lives here and now. The past coming, the future coming, and the present coming. The, the fact that Jesus has broken down the barriers and is interested in you right now. Not just some past tense work of his, not just something we have to wait for someday, but something that God is interested in doing in you right now. Advent is a season marked by waiting. The main trait, perhaps, um, as we celebrate the, the hope and the peace and the joy and the love, it's, it's really about waiting. It's a, as we accumulate the brightness around the Advent calendar, we don't light them all, all at once. We wait. We take one step at a time. Think about the eagerness for Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, however your family has chosen to celebrate that. Think about the, the build up to that. It's all about waiting well. So what does waiting and joy have to do with one another? What do those two concepts, um, how do they relate? There's so many different passages that we can go to um, this time of year. And sometimes we, um, we get in the same thought habits and we encounter the same, it seems like Isaiah 9 is the, the passage that we come to this time of year, but maybe not a whole lot the, the rest of the year. And sometimes because of that, it can kind of wash over us in a, in a way that we don't, don't actually hear it. And I want us to, to kind of break out of that and try to be attentive to that and, and pay close attention while we encounter those kind of passages. But I also want to, this morning, take a look at a passage that probably we don't usually associate with the season of Advent. I want to look at uh, a passage 
that takes into account the past and the future and the present coming of Christ and what that might have to do with joy. So if you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. Peter says this, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you hear the forward-looking posture there? In all this, you greatly rejoice. A word that is synonymous with, with joy, right? In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of of trials. One of the most operative questions for us when it comes to grief is how do I grieve in the midst of suffering, this thing that marks human experience at every level? How can I be joyful in the midst of suffering? Well, think about that. These have come, verse 7, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, forward looking. And then notice how Peter works joy into this passage. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, if there was one phrase that could kind of uh, encapsulate the season of Advent, it's even though you do not see him now. Even though you do not see him now, you believe him in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The work of Christ in the resurrection, the coming salvation that we will experience, all of that met by a present tense joy. And not just any joy, an inexpressible and glorious joy, a joy that cannot come any other way. Peter says that in the waiting, there is a joy that words can't express that is available to us. And it is only found in Christ. A joy that words can't express. Try though we may. And Christ and Christ alone can bring that joy into our lives. We've experienced it, right? There are moments that we can think back to, the way that Christ has broken into, the way Jesus has shifted things in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. Things that you can't quite put words to, but Bring a smile to your face 
nonetheless. Peter says that is a mark of the life with Christ. In the waiting, there's a joy that words can't express. And in the waiting, there is a joy that the world can't contain. A joy that the world can't contain can mark our lives. So much... So many of the issues that we have when it comes to experiencing joy is that we're looking for it in, in a box that this world can contain. We're looking for it uh, in ways that make sense to us and things that we can describe with a simple sentence. And Peter says, it's inexpressible and it's glorious. This deep, deep joy that Christ wants to work into your heart. And this is, this is the mark of the gospel. This, this is the mark of Jesus coming to earth. When the angel comes and meets the shepherd in that familiar passage from Luke 2, he says, I'm bringing good news of great tidings. It's going to be joy for all. That is the first descriptor of the gospel. Joy for every person. Not more rules to follow. Not this, not that. All of the stuff that we make the gospel about, the very first descriptor of it in the gospels is good news, joy for every person. That is what Christ brings to the world, inexpressible and glorious joy. That is the gospel. That is what Christ wants for your life right now, even in the waiting. But we have a joy problem. And I want to talk about two sides of our joy problem and then get to maybe a bit of a joy solution. We've got a joy problem. We got issues coming at us from all angles. Um, first, I'm going to process the one that has gotten into me uh, the worst, and then um, the one that has gotten into me the second worst. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have a joy problem. I want to fir first talk about the happiness slash holiness dilemma is what I'm going to call it. The happiness slash holiness dilemma. I don't know about you. Um, have you ever heard something like this? Um, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And everybody was like, no, I've never heard anything as awful as that. <laughs> We might learn more about where Joshua came from here. Uh, that's fine. <clears throat> maybe, maybe a softer version of it. God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. There's some version of it. It's, it's tied up in some like fundamentalist um, strands um, that come from my background, which was Southern Baptist, but is also like part of the Pentecostal movement as well. Some of those fundamentalist strands are there as well. And while you may not hear that sort of thing as much today, those old habits of heart die hard. Uh, and you hear that message enough times and it can mess with you. It's, it often doesn't come from a bad place. God is interested in your holiness and mine being separate. God himself is holy. He calls us to be holy. Um, but what the issue is, I mean, there's so many issues with this. 
But the, the, the posture of God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Like, well, don't you just sound so fun? <laughs> don't you sound like somebody who follows the way that I am interested in? That's not the compelling vision of the gospel that even scripture paints. That's the thing. Good tidings, great joy for all, for everybody. Holiness, yes. Holiness and happiness aren't competing concepts. Holiness can bring about happiness. And I think that is what folks who uh, camp out in that idea, I think that's what they're trying to get at, is that holiness can bring about true and good and lasting happiness. Sure. But we forget then that happiness can also aid in our journey to becoming holy. And that's not something you hear quite as much, but it is it's part of the way God has designed this world. It's why we spent time going through Genesis, looking at the beginning, looking at the beauty of creation and the way that God built blessing in from the very beginning. God wants you to participate in and enjoy his good and beautiful world. And out of that can then spring a life of goodness and, and holiness. If we're just trying to grit our way to happiness through holiness, it, we often find ourselves coming up short. Those who emphasize holiness over happiness, it's not that you don't end up ever enjoying anything, but if you do, it ends up just being this, this little accident that happens along the way, a little happy accident, like an extra stump in a Bob Ross painting. <laughs> Dallas Willard um, just absolutely detonates this idea. In one of my favorite books, The Spirit of the Disciplines, um, it's, he has a couple of chapters in there in particular about this. One is called The Spiritual Life, The Body's Fulfillment. And I, I want to share with you a quote from him. This is probably going to take a couple slides, so just hang with me here. Just hear this. How many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule. Oh. Listen, like, put that on a bumper sticker. Wholesome liveliness springing from the balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule. It's not that the rule isn't there. It's that it's couched in all of this other good stuff. We can experience the rule in a joyful way, in a joyful and good and beautiful way. He goes on. Such failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Do you hear that? I, I said earlier, happiness may actually contribute to our holiness, and here's how it works. Here lies the strength of temptation. This is no less true if the failure is caused by our efforts to be what we regard as spiritual. Normally, our success in overcoming temptation will be easier if we are basically happy in our lives. My life changed the moment I read that sentence. Because it put together what I thought 
made sense from scripture already. This is not saying that you have to be happy and then you can go on and be faithful. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that as the goodness and the joy, the genuine joy that God wants for you filters into your life, you're going to find that it affects your ability in a nothing but positive way, in your ability to walk faithfully with Jesus. The last part of the quote, to cut off joy and pleasures associated with our bodily and socially uh, uh, social existence as unspiritual then can actually have the effect of weakening us in our efforts to do what is right. It makes it impossible for us to see and draw strength from the goodness of rightness. The goodness of rightness. That's what we're getting at. The goodness of rightness. That's what God wants to indwell your life through Christ. Holiness and happiness, both incredibly important concepts all throughout Scripture. Sometimes some people take issue with the word happiness being used synonymously uh, with, with joy. And there is, um, there is certainly another depth to joy that happiness can't quite attain on its own. Um, I believe that wholeheartedly. I've just heard too many people say that and then go live very unhappy lives. And I wonder if we need to bring happiness back into our joy equation. And so you're going to hear me talk about happiness unapologetically. Both are important, holiness and, happy, and to happiness. And to pit one against the other, it's unhealthy and unhelpful. It's, let's not do it. Don't devalue holiness, but don't devalue happiness either. Maybe reorient your approach to it. That's one joy problem that we have, the happiness-holiness dilemma. God's calling you to holiness through happiness. And we could ask ourselves this. Normally, I, I wait till the end to ask reflective questions. I'm going hit to hit you with one right now. You hear the angel say to the shepherd, great joy for all. I want to ask you this. Does your life convey that the good news is actually good? Does your life convey that the good news is meant to bring joy for all? The way that you engage in conversation, your thought patterns, your engagement with others, the way you treat your family, your friends, yourself, does that convey that the good news is good? Or is it more of a slog? More of an add-on, more of a tack-on. The good news is good, and our, our lives ought to look like it. A joy problem, the holiness-happiness dilemma, and then the other side of the joy problem, which is the pleasure dilemma. Our pursuit of happiness typically aligns with culturally approved and promoted methods that goes something along the lines of this, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. Our joy is rich and full in Christ because 
not because we minimize pain, but because we take it seriously. We can lean into it, know that God meets us there. Um, pleasure and happiness, two different, two different things. Uh, Robert Lustig wrote a book called The Hacking of the American Mind in which he sort of outlined how we as a society are, uh, we've been duped into these pleasure cycles uh, and as a result are unhappier than ever because we find little pieces of it that we think are going to make us happy. And instead, what they do is they bring us pleasure, which is fleeting. It's just here for a moment, it feels real good, and then it's gone. Pleasure is, this feels good, I want more. Whereas happiness is, this feels good, I, I'm content. Pleasure is extrinsic motivation for reward, and then I got to do whatever I can to get that reward. And then once I've experienced the reward, then I'm motivated to get more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. It's just always accumulating, always accumulating. It's extrinsic versus happiness, which is an intrinsic, intrinsically motivated trait. There's a number of ways of describing this. Um, pleasure is short-lived. It's based on an experience and it happens, then it's over versus happiness, which is longer lasting, um, tied to a sense of achievement or something like a relationship, something that lasts. Pleasure is tied to visceral uh, excitement, increases the heart rate, whereas happiness is more often calming. Uh, <laughs> pleasure is tied to substances, whereas happiness is tied to deeds, acts, states. Whatnot. It's taking versus giving. It's self-impacting versus community impacting. Pleasure does not take into account that reward unchecked leads to misery. Not to further fulfillment, but to misery. Gotta have more, gotta have more, gotta have more, gotta have more, and all of a sudden I feel like I have nothing. That is what pleasure is designed to do in our hearts. Contentment leads to satisfaction. It's what Christ wants for our heart. Pleasure is tied to the release of dopamine, which will never, ever be fully satisfying. It's good to have those good little experiences. Those aren't bad in and of themselves. They just can't bear up under the weight of our lives. They can't ultimately make us happy people. We should fill our lives with little pleasures. But what do you do with those little pleasures? How do you turn them into happiness? How do you turn them into joy? I have had so many peppermint mochas already this very season. That is a pleasure thing. I can't even pretend that that is something else. That is a pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. Was that you, Artie? Yeah, yeah thank you, Artie. Thanks. But I, I relegate, I've, I got rules about this stuff. Like, I, I got rules. So from Thanksgiving night to Christmas, like, that is my peppermint mocha season, and that is my Christmas music season. Because I love both of those things a whole lot, and they help me bring, they help bring about joy in my life in this specific season. When I am worn out from the end of the year, I'm, I'm cruising into the end of the semester, and I am, like, busy beyond belief. But those things help bring about 
some happiness in the season, but that it's not those things in and of themselves. It's how do we take those and say, thanks, thanks be to God, and then say, that's not the, that's not the, the main point, right? Have we let, or perhaps we should ask, how have we let our pursuits of pleasure get in the way of us experiencing genuine happiness? The dopamine hit that works for this moment, but not so well for this afternoon. Not so well for the long haul. How have you settled for substitutes for cheap joy? Where are the joy substitutes in your life? Do you need to take them out or do you need to reorient your perspective? on them. We've all got them. We got to be thoughtful about them. Some we need to remove. Some we need to change. How have you settled for substitutes for cheap joy? So there's our joy problem. We, we got a joy issue on the one side where, where uh, the, the holier than now will say, ah, it's, it's not even, happiness is not even important. It might be a byproduct of something that happens in your relationship with Christ. It's not that important, though. Whereas on the other side, we get like, all you should do is try to be happy, and you accumulate that through pleasure. We've got two competing ideas there, neither of which paint the full picture. And so we're going to spend this whole season talking about joy and the ways that we can develop it in our lives. I want to just give us two quick ideas as we... Um, as we move along here. First of all, the joy solution uh, first comes through discipline, which may sound like a reversion back to the holiness-happiness issue. But it's not. Uh, this is something rooted in... So there, there was a study from uh, 2005 that's become like pretty uh, popularized that was trying to measure, psychologists were trying to measure where uh, and how much of our happiness um, is something that's just innate to us or it's, and how much of it is something that we can do something about. Uh, and the result is this 50-40-10 principle. We can see it in, in the pie chart here. 50% of your disposition towards happiness is genetic. Your gene scent point. You are either a little bit more of a melancholic person or you're a little bit more of a Gianna. Like you... <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you're, we are all on this huge gradient towards like a little... Mm, not so sure about this day, to like, what an amazing day to be alive. And those are, ex those are extremes, but we all fall somewhere on that gradient. But that's only 50%. That's half of the puzzle. That's half of it. 40% comes down to our actions and our thoughts, the disciplines of heart and mind. You'll hear me say the phrase habit of heart so frequently because we, we are formed by the habits that make their way into our soul. And you can, over time, train yourself in the way of joy or not. You can. It is, I am not saying you can just make yourself a happy, joyful person all the time. That's not exactly 
the way it works. But over time, we can make choices by being a part of community. You know, one of the, one of the fascinating things from Robert Lustig's book about happiness and pleasure is his conclusion that we, he has four things that we need to do, and it's basically an outline of Acts 2, what the church is doing. They cook together. They're a community together. They cope together. It's amazing that the formula for church is the formula for joy, and now science is starting to back, back that up as well, just starting to catch up with what we've known for a long, long time. I love that. 50% is genes, 40% is uh, our actions, and then only 10%, roughly, is circumstances. It is so easy for us to say, I can't be joyful in this moment because of this thing that is happening. Now, I want to be real careful here, because, because the suffering is real, and if, Peter mentions it, right? We experience deep trial. And so we're going to spend a whole week talking about joy and trial next week. God cares about your pain and he wants to meet you in, in the midst of it. Well, what this study helps us see and what I think scripture bears out is that at the end of the day, the external circumstances of our life are not ultimate in determining our ability to be happy, to be joyful people. They will impact it to an extent, but not ultimately. And so, though this 40%, we gotta be busy about, right? We gotta be actively pushing against a society that wants us to be angry about this, outraged about that. And it takes discipline. It takes discipline. On that note, Henry Nouwen says this, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. And so think about that 40%. What are you going to, how are you going to use that 40% to get that truth into your life? That nothing, there is no barrier between God and you. God is on his way towards you through grace, through love. What are you going to do to remind yourself of that? In his famous book on the spiritual disciplines titled The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster chooses as his final disciplines, final spiritual practice, the celebration of, well, the discipline of celebration. In that chapter, he says this, the discipline to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. It's that 40%. It's an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on your head. I love that. It won't just happen. It is not something that falls on your head. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. We 
We've got to cultivate delight in God's good world. What brings you joy? Think it's worth spending time thinking about it. What brings you joy? And lean into that thing. What what brings a smile to your face? Do you know that God has put that there in your life to like draw you towards him? That's the way God works. What brings you joy? How can you let little pleasures, peppermint mochas, drive you to joy? The, the practice of gratitude is essential towards becoming a, a joyful person. This looks different season by season. Uh, last Sunday, we, we got done with church and we headed out to uh, Hladke's little Christmas tree farm. We, we found our little Douglas fir and cut it down with a faulty saw that took longer than I wanted it to, but eventually uh, I've got the joy of the tree cut, <coughs> cut down. <laughs> Great moment. <laughs> Put it on top of the car, brought it home, decorated it, got the lights up. And every morning this week, I've still been on text this time, so I've been up early this, this week. And so I've got my cup of coffee, just sat there with my lamp and the Christmas tree on, just enjoying it. Just a little bit of joy. Because I need that. We need that. The joy solution is the discipline, and then it's the waiting. The waiting itself actually helps contribute to the joy. Because one of the issues with pleasure is that it undoes our ability to wait. You don't, you don't have to wait to experience pleasure. It's here right now. Go get it. That is the formula. But waiting enhances and increases joy. In Advent, we celebrate God breaking through and coming to us. We celebrate that the work of God is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon the faithfulness of God in, in coming to us in the past, in the future, and to us right now. And waiting reminds us that what matters most is what we are doing with the present moment. What are you going to do with this 40 I've put a couple of questions to you already. Does your life convey that the good news is actually good? That it is meant to cause joy for all? And then how have you settled for cheap substitutes for joy? And I want to close with just this final question. How can you choose joy in the areas God is calling you to wait right now? And so as a community, we're going to wait together throughout the season of Advent as we accumulate the brightness on the way to Christmas. We're going to try to foster a habit of heart together that will allow us to lean into the joy 
of the season? How will you let it work its way into you? Worship team, why don't you come on up? We are going to sing uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel again. Emmanuel, Hebrew name for God. Im with Anu, first person, plural, pronominal suffix, which is a fat and fancy way of saying us. With us, L, the with us, God. We celebrate and call for God to come be here and now, knowing that he is eager to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you meet us, uh, that you meet us in the waiting and um, in the moments that we don't always um, actively see what you are up to. Would you reorient our perspective? Would you help us with our our 40% turning our attention and our disciplines and our choices towards um, loving and enjoying and celebrating you and the stuff that you do in our lives? And as you bring joy into our lives, may it make us uh, people who live more faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.